you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Um, it's really good to be here this morning, and, and as we were singing and praying, just had um, the, a, the deep sense of, of weight and duty uh, that it is to be able to proclaim the truth of God's word uh, to God's people. And, and so I, I enter the pulpit with that posture that, that this is, this is a, a huge task for us to come and to sit under the authority of God's word uh, with, with all that we bring into the room um, and all that we leave the room to, to do in the next week. And it, it made me really think about this, this sermon series that we're in. We're spending three weeks uh, discussing our, our perspective on time as Christians. Uh, last week, Reed talked about um, disordered views of the past and how, how the work of Christ and, and the, the sovereign grace of God redeems our past, uh, even our past when they are filled with, with uh, traumas and, and misery and, and sorrow. Um, and it redeems our, our past even when we have a nostalgic view uh, that leads us to a bit of an apathy or, or a, a lack of excitement about what lies ahead. And this week, uh, we talk about the future. Um, I was... Uh, not doing sermon study this week when I was listening to one of my favorite songwriters, Gregory Allen Isakoff, and he, he wrote this line that I think is particularly helpful. He says, well, time has a way of throwing it all in your face. The past, she is haunted. The future is laced. And, and I think that is poignant in that we are shaped by time. And apart from having a properly Christian perspective on time as a necessary ingredient for our growth, time really does have a way of throwing it all in our face. Our pasts are often haunted with loss and grief and shame and guilt, uh, with missed opportunities, traumatic experiences, unmet expectations. And our futures are laced with the uppers of utopian visions and the downers of fatalism. More likely, our perceptions of the future lead us to a mixture of, of unbridled optimism and uncontrolled pessimism. We, we long for utopia, and we fear potential doom, and we do all of that at the same time. And our disordered views of the future, they make us dysfunctional in the present. M- many of us are, are, are those to whom Jesus was speaking because we are anxious and fearful about what tomorrow brings, both what is known and what is unknown. Some of us are tight-gripped and controlling, over-functioning, hoping to secure the, the tomorrow that seems best to us, the one that feels safest to us. And some of us are blindly ambitious in pursuits of safety and security and wealth and rest. Some of us are obsessive in our efforts to prevent future suffering, and if we're honest, to outwit death. Some of us are listless and lazy, reckoning ourselves impotent to prevent the the coming doom 
that, that is sure to, to come in, in the next days or weeks or years. Some of us are apathetic and cynical, presenting as casually aloof in an effort to hide the reality that, that we're actually deeply afraid and have really strong doubts about what lies ahead. And as we learned last week, our pasts also inform our present. Some of you are are always waiting for the next shoe to drop because the, the years that have preceded today have been full of, of sorrow, of grief, of suffering. And today, what I hope we will see is that our future vision informs our present posture. And, and so if the goal is faithfulness and health and joy in the now, we'd probably all need a better vision of the future. And so let's pray and see what the Lord has for us in his word. Father, we come to you and ask that you would speak to us according to the abundance of your mercy, according to the, the beauty of your revelation in your word and, and the, the glory of your son would you speak to us and shape us and inform us that we might have proper perspective and posture in the present so that we can serve you today regardless of what comes tomorrow would you convict us of anxiety and ambition and transform us into those who are humble before you ready to serve you today and tomorrow and the next day into whatever it is that you lead us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Anna read this passage from from Matthew in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, talking about anxiety about tomorrow. Do not worry about where you're going to get food or, or clothing. The Lord is going to provide. And Jesus' brother James speaks about the future uh, this way. He says this in James 4, verses 13 through 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So on the one hand, Matthew 6 and James 4 are similar. The call is for us to be firmly established in the present and to trust God with the future, to not be overly concerned with what's coming. And on the other hand, they're speaking to different pitfalls. Jesus addresses those who plan ahead with, uh, James addresses those who plan ahead with ambition and optimism. Right, treating tomorrow as the locale of their satisfaction and their wealth and all of the ways in which their persona will be built up. And Jesus addresses those who see tomorrow as a place of uncertainty. What will I eat? Where will I live? How will I survive? So the question for you as, as we think about this is when you think of the future, is it a place where things are better than they are today? A place that slowly or maybe even quickly becomes a utopia? Or is tomorrow worse than today? Is tomorrow the place where the other shoe drops, where things fall apart, where more suffering lurks? 
As we think of the future, there, there are two sides of a spectrum, and both ends are a distortion of a proper vision of the future. So utopia on one end and fatalistic doom on the other. And that's not to say that, that people are so simply as to only hold one in their mind. In fact, I, I think all of us at times hold a simultaneous vision of the future that tends toward utopia and a simultaneous vi- vision of the future, which is fear of doom. And our worldviews, our values, and our experiences from the past, they shape what our perception of the future will be like. And I think this will be easy, easier to understand if we take a macro vision of the future um, and, and just drawing on, on kind of topics that I think people will relate to. Uh, let's just think about the generalized future perspectives of the current political climate. So, so on the left, you have this utopian vision of progress, right, that, that might involve some globalist society in which uh, monocultural re- religion of equity and inclusion finds prominence and acceptance. There's peace and there's no more poverty. And in some ways, it, it's a lot like Babel, before God intervenes, where people are building up this stronghold of a kingdom marked by unity and and a common goal. Marginalized communities are given prominence. But the right also has a utopian vision of the future. It's just different. There's secured borders across the globe in which nations establish their own cultural norms which are upheld and justice is done. Wealth is widely available. Conservative moral values are accepted and practiced. Individual liberties are respected and defended above public concerns. Of course, these are caricatures, but but I think we can see how... How, how this comes into play and how we're probably shaped by some of these ideas. And, and yet both have visions of doom. On the left, the global climate is going to become incompatible with human life and we are all going to die. And this may be soon. I mean, some of you are laughing, but this is a, a real worldview, right? There's mass opposition to equity movements. People are marginalized and and and. and separated and destroyed. Conservatives are in power. They're forcing their views upon others. And then on the right, there's doom as well. Moral and social decay take root such that humanity becomes totally undesirable. Humanity stops desiring to reproduce to a rate that that eventually all of the race of men dies out. Individual liberties are rejected in favor of communist agendas. Liberals are in power, forcing their views upon others. You can see how these are similar. Both involve a fear of others having control, different value sets being the standard definition of good, and the destruction of civilization or humanity. And and so some utopian hopes are good, but, but what we need to know is humans have neither the power, the moral ability, or the intellectual capacity to establish a utopian future. Similarly, some of the fatalistic fears are legitimate concerns, but living in constant anxiety is not only unhealthy and unproductive, it is ungodly and faithless. But it's easy to, to use 
political parties as punching bags. Let's look within the church. Christians tend toward utopian thoughts and dreads of doom as well. If any of you are familiar with eschatological conversations, you're very familiar with this, but, but some of you have been taught to envision a future Christianization of the world in which mass conversions, governments are upholding Christian values, biblical morality and reverence toward Jesus is, is the cultural norm such that the whole world looks a lot like one big Christian movement. Some of you have been taught on the opposite that the world is totally decaying morally that, and religiously such that Christians are going to be led throughout the world to be hiding in holes, praying in secret, and, and everything is going to fall apart. So, so both hopes and fears, which may be godly, good, and reasonable, can become obsessions. And when they become obsessions, they become detractors from health and from faithfulness and from the ability to present, to be present in the moment that God has placed us in, which is ultimately the consistent call that God has placed on the lives of his people from Genesis to Revelation is be faithful to me today. And then tomorrow you can be faithful to me again. But to be faithful to me today, we become dysfunctional and ungodly when we fixate on the future especially when we do so with unbridled optimism or unrestrained fear. Uh, let's look at our personal or micro-future perspectives. For some of you, tomorrow is it's the placeholder of your satisfaction. And, and all others would need to do is have a conversation with you to find this out. The future is when you will have enough wealth to be happy and secure. The future is when you will live in the place you finally want to live. The future is where you will enjoy the relationship that you've been pining for and, and obsessing over. The future is when you get the job that finally respects your ability to bring something to the table. The future is, is where the problems of your present are, are gone. And, and for some of you, this is an imminent reality. It's always lurking. The next change is going to be the one that brings about the, the self-satisfaction, the perfection of me. It's optimistic, and, and sometimes you, you fixate uh, upon these optimistic ideals as necessities for your life to be truly good and meaningful. Right? You, you get an idea of what the future has to hold in order for your life to have value. So you miss out on today by working endlessly for tomorrow, burning the midnight oil and sacrificing today to reach the dreams of early retirement, 2.5 children, and a nice house on the cul-de-sac, and a clean bill of health such that you never die. And for some of you, tomorrow, like we've said, it's where the other shoe drops. Right? Your, your fear is constantly fixated on the suffering that's ahead, the, the unforeseen challenges, the losses, the traumas that you've yet to experience that you can't foresee. In your view, the future is just more of the same at best, and likely it is worse. So you fixate on tomorrow with anxiety. Will you have enough to pay the bills? Will you get to keep your job? Will the relationship you're enjoying now last Will anything good come to you? Probably not, you think. Maybe your pessimism about tomorrow doesn't allow you to enjoy today. Or, or, or maybe it leads you to foolish decisions today. I, I, I may as well live it up now because who knows how long I've got. 
I'll eat what I want. I'll drink what I want. I'll sleep with whomever I want because there's no point in discipline today if tomorrow is just misery. I might as well enjoy everything I can today. So, so the fixation on utopia plays out in blind ambition. And, and power grabbing and mania and over-functioning. And these dispositions are natural for people who need to create a future devoid of suffering. Like, why would you not overfunction? Why would you not be a bit manic if tomorrow has to be the place where you don't suffer? If you need a future that's full of wealth and happiness and personal gratification, if your goals for the future or fears about the future insist that you hoard wealth, Ignore relationships, disdain rest, obsess over your health, and miss what God is doing in the moment, then you need a better vision of the future. Similarly, if your vision of the future leads you to apathy and inaction in the present, towards cynicism and depression and hysteria and anxiety and hedonism and self-centered relational sabotage, then you also need a better vision of the future. So what is that, that better vision of the future that we need? What's the better posture? First, we need humility. Humility is key to our perspective of the future. We need humility in light of the sovereignty of God. There is nothing that will give you a better vision of the future than a proper biblical understanding of God's sovereignty. We do not control the future God does. In fact, he's already foreordained the future. He has decided what is to come tomorrow. You don't need to worry about it. God's already planned it. And that plan is better than your plan. And that's good news. That's not a slight at you. That's just good news. We should be encouraged by that. God is sovereign. He's got a plan, and it's better than your plan. And if you're a child of God, that plan is is better for you than your plan. Because Romans 8 tells us that God is working out all things for the good of those who love him. So trust him in the present. And trust is humility. Second, Jesus tells us that we need to release our anxieties, fears, and apathy. Do not be anxious. That is not an invitation. It is a command. Do not be anxious. But what do we take up in place of anxiety? Sobriety. We need sobriety in the place of anxiety. The third thing we need is to release unbridled optimism and a misplaced sense of security and blind ambition. And what do we take up in their place? Hope. Hope. So we need humility that allows us to be sober-minded and hopeful. And when we have humility that allows us to be sober-minded and hopeful, then our vision of tomorrow will be proper in its place and in the space it takes up in our brain and in our soul, and our ability to be present today will be more than we've ever experienced in the, few, in the past. Hear this from 1 Peter chapter 5. The Apostle Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time 
he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Some of you just need to hear that. He cares for you. So be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's humbling. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter has just finished telling his readers in this passage of the sort of things they might expect in the future. And if you read 1 Peter chapter 4, you would know that what he's telling them to expect is suffering. He says, do not be surprised when you experience various trials, when you suffer for the name of Christ. And then he exhorts them to take up this posture. And it begins with humility. Why? Because humility is rooted and situated in our relationship to God. We are God's children, which means we are below God in power and in authority, and we are under his care, and so we trust in that care. We humble ourselves under the hand of God, but not just under any hand of God, under the mighty hand of God. God's hand is mighty, and so we humble ourselves under it. Distorted views of the future, whether dystopian or utopian, either either one of these come from or produce arrogance. Arrogance is at the root of, of anxiety, And it's also at the root of ambition, uh, ungodly ambition. And so we're called to humility. It's arrogant to believe you can produce for yourself paradise, safety, and security. And it is arrogant to believe that because the things around you don't meet your expectations, that they're all going to fall apart. Humility is the posture of the Christian at all times, and it informs our perspective of the future. And so let's look at the passage a a bit deeper. What does Peter tell us is going to happen? That God is going to exalt us at the proper time. You don't need to know the time. You just need to know that it's the proper time and that God's going to do it. He cares for us at all times, and he will exalt you at the proper time. Furthermore, he will restore us when we suffer. He will restore us. This is good news. He will restore us and strengthen us and establish us so we don't need unbridled optimism about a future that isn't real and won't ever exist. Instead, we need hope in the future that God has promised will exist. See, that's, that's real. That's something that we can hold on to. That's something that allows us to rest today is knowing that God has many precious and very good promises for us in the future that will surely come to pass because he's never lied and he has already decreed that they will happen and so we can rest today. We need hope in the future that will exist. Paul tells us that hope will not put us to shame. Unbridled optimism will. Hope will never put you to shame. 
Hope is confidence in the security that comes only from God through Christ. It's the security that in the future, our sins will still be forgiven, even the ones you commit tomorrow. So we have hope. The cross and the resurrection in the past give us hope in the present regarding security and salvation in the future. Hope is confidence in the inheritance of the riches of God's blessing as those who are God's children. And what is that inheritance? It's the fullness of life with God forever in peace. So don't hope in early retirement. It is a small, fleeting, and spiritually dangerous hope. Instead, hope that God will provide for you forever and will give you life with him forever and that you will enjoy him forever and that you will glorify him forever. Have hope that when you suffer, not if you suffer, but when you suffer, that God will use it, that he will see you through it, that he will comfort you and establish you and give you strength in those moments and that your suffering will be vindicated unto glory. Have hope in that. Hope is less about the specifics of the future and it's more about the promise that in the future God will still be God. That Jesus will still be king. And that you will still be his. We don't need visions of old age and good health and vacations on the beach. We need hope that life with Christ, wherever he leads us, is the only life worth living. The passage doesn't speak only of hopeful things, though. It calls us to sobriety. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So sobriety is knowing that things will be hard, that we will be tested, that suffering is sure, that Satan will be attacking, and that God is still good, and that he has sovereignly ordained all that has and will come to pass. So his promises haven't failed us when we suffer or when we're tempted or when we feel attacked. And because of that, our hearts should not be anxious. Sobriety is far better than anxiety. Peter said in the sentence before, cast your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. So why shouldn't we be anxious when God promises that we will suffer and that Satan will seek to devour us? That sounds like the kind of thing that should make us anxious because God cares for you. That's why. Because he cares for you and because if we are watchful and humble and sober, we have nothing to fear. Sobriety is knowing that hard things will come and yet nothing is to be feared by those who are in God through Christ. If the almighty God of the universe cares for you, what do you have to fear? If the almighty God of the universe has called you his son or his daughter, what do you have to fear? What will separate you from Christ and and the love of Christ? Will, Will tribulation or persecution or famine or danger, or nakedness, or sword? By no means. 
by no means. This is what David knew when he said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. It's easy to say, I shall fear no evil, when we don't expect to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But David knew he was going into the valley of the shadow of death. And he said, I shall fear no evil. And why? Well, the next line tells us. Because God's rod and his staff, they comfort me. Though your suffering may seem new to you, and, and it may seem unique to you in some ways, Peter sobers us because he, he says that it's not new to God or unique among the people of God. N- know that none of these things, uh, that, that all these things that are coming upon you are happening to the brotherhood all over the world. So there might be unique details to your suffering or your tribulation, but the reality is, is it's not unique to God. It's not unique to God's people. So he's perfectly equipped to see you through it. We need sobriety instead of fear because sobriety is humble and because sobriety is productive. The sober-minded man knows that Satan is prowling, and so he watches, he waits, he prays, and he joins God in victory through Christ our victor. The fearful man knows that something bad is coming, so he curls up, he cowers, and he's devoured. At first glance, hope is the the proper correction to utopian optimism, right? Instead of this unbridled optimism, we need godly hope. Because godly optimism rooted in the promises and sure realities of God uh, to come, like, this is good. Hope is better than optimism. And, And that's true. And so sobriety seems like the correction to these fears of doom and dystopia in as much as it's a recognition that the world is still broken and that suffering is still to be endured, But I think it's essential that we have both. So whether you tend toward unbridled optimism or or anxiety and fear, you need hope and sobriety. Because maybe you're more prone to the ambitious pursuits of utopia. You need sobriety. You need sobriety. Because sobriety lets you know that no matter how much money you save how well you eat, how much you exercise, how much you put in place to protect yourself from suffering, how much you protect your family from suffering, sobriety tells you you will still bury loved ones. You will still get sick. You will still die. You still might suffer want. You still will struggle with sin and need the unending grace of God to come upon you in your repentance. You will still be failed by people, maybe even the people you rely on and trust the most. And so if your stock is in avoiding suffering and you lack sobriety, the moment suffering comes, your faith is in full crisis. The optimist needs sobriety too. In the same way, the the pessimist needs hope. You need to know that you can't thwart the goodness of the coming of God's kingdom, his justice, his love, and his mercy, and neither can the cultures or nations of mankind. The promises of God will come to pass. Have hope. You need hope that God still cares for the outcast, even when you feel all alone, that his forgiveness doesn't run dry, even when you feel enveloped in your sin, 
that the nations will one day be glad in their submission to Jesus as king, even as rampant rejection and idolatry takes place all around you, that you need to know that people will get saved even when ministry seems slow and difficult, and that all things will be made new until only glory remains. You need hope. Your sin won't defeat you. Your life in Christ is eternal. God has secured and is protecting your inheritance, so you need not fear tomorrow. God will never leave you nor forsake you. This is a promise from the mouth of Christ himself. Your suffering will be vindicated. Glory will result. So take heart and have hope. Because if all of your energy and expectations are are in the reality that bad things will happen, you will miss out on the joy of God. You will not notice the movement of God when it's taking place. And you will be ineffective in the kingdom of God. There is no context for effective ministry apart from hope and trust that God does good things, that God redeems broken things, that God forgives sinful people. So have hope. If you don't have hope, you will not only be ineffective in the kingdom of God, eventually you will probably stop believing there is a God if you don't have hope. I want to finish our time in 1 Peter chapter 1. This passage that over the last 10 years at Sojourn, we've spent so much time in. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. May God fill us with the sort of humility, sobriety, and hope that leads us to believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter is saying that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, has secured our future. That's good news. He has made us alive with him in his resurrection. Just as he put our sin to death with him on the cross, so today we can hope in him. We can worship him. We can be humble in his presence under his mighty hand, fully sober to the reality that things won't always be easy, but that he will always be good. His kingdom will always be worth it, and our future will never be jeopardized by the powers of hell or the schemes of men. God is guarding our retirement in eternity, and he is calling us to join him in the work that he is doing today, right now. So let's stop fixating on the future and trust God with it.
having hope in His promises. Let's repent of our anxiety, knowing that God cares for us so much that He would die for us. And let's join together this morning at the table where we rehearse our future with hope and with sobriety. There's immense hope in the meal as we hope in that eternal wedding feast that will commence when Christ returns. And there's sobriety in the meal as we come feast upon the broken body and shed blood of our Lord that is necessary because of our sinfulness and desperate need for God's grace. We'll feast with God forever. And so we feast now in the reality that Christ has died in our place. He has taken our burdens. He has borne God's wrath on our behalf. And, and this means that our future isn't despair and doom and destruction. Hear this, because without Christ, it is. Without Christ, the only antidote to the reality of doom is, is blind optimism. So if you've yet to trust in Christ this morning, I want to ask you honestly to consider this question. Where does your hope lie? Because every hope that is not the crucified and risen King of kings, Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, every other hope is a leaky vessel. And so this morning I invite you to come to Christ, be humbled under his mighty hand, be made sober-minded to the reality that life will still be hard and yet be filled with inexhaustible and inexpressible hope in the fact that there is eternal glory and life awaiting for those who would call upon Christ. Let's pray.